The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I'm Dave Goldberg, I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag BigBeaconRadio. Our first, spo- our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. A couple thousand new copies sitting in the warehouse. It's not just for engineers any anymore. And today, uh, it's, it's my delight to welcome a uh, uh, former University of Illinois colleague and, and uh, friend, uh, Bruce Vojak, to the show. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thanks, Dave. It's uh, great to be here with you. Well, and Bruce, and you know, as if, if you listen, if you've listened to the show, we you know we like to get to know our um, our uh, guests and and get our listeners to understand some of the background. And so you've had a you've had a long career in industry, uh, starting with Amico and then Motorola, and you finished up uh, just finished up a second long career as associate dean for external affairs at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. You're a author of the book that we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about, serial innovators. Mm-hmm. And now you had your own consulting firm, but let's let's go back in the log cabin. Um, I guess that's okay. a good thing for Illinoisans to do. And and um, and what were some of the early influences that have uh, put you on this uh, on on your current path and interesting path? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dave. It's actually it's an interesting question, and I think it's a really good one too. You know, if I look back, uh, and some of these things I may or may not have shared with you in the past, but you know, I grew up in the Chicago area in the in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, interestingly, even though my career had been uh, technical by nature, at least a good part of it was, my dad was in advertising and his uh, passions in the evening would be to oil paint and take pictures with, uh, you know, photography. And so I grew up kind of in a context, if you will, that even though I had uh, passion for technical things and math and science, I grew up in the context of of an environment that, you know, appreciated art and for that matter, music as well. had uh, some great school experiences, um, you know, throughout grade school and high school. But again, a lot of that was, if you will, uh, in the context of what had been uh, the space race, uh, you know, kind of coming of age as that was, uh, sure. uh, you know, materializing. And so uh, I'd say those influences together probably were the ones that, you know, 
most likely put me on the path to where I'm at. The the space race, if you will, on the technical side, and that you know the home environment really on uh, the areas that complement that. Yeah, and and uh, so it's in, you know sometimes uh, people get into engineering naturally with uh, parents who were engineers. But what what was yep. the uh, what was the motive to at an early age uh, head in the technical direction for you? You know, it's it, again a great question. I'd have to really think about what if there was any one point. I'd say that basically, I uh, like I think many people back in that time frame, being very good at math and science, uh, uh, made it pretty much a natural. Uh, I did sure. start out uh, as a physics major at Illinois, and then only uh, uh, after about a year or two of that, decided to move over to electrical engineering. But uh, again, that technical side, had, I think, it had already begun to merge before I even hit middle school. Sure, and and that we're also interested in the show on uh, in this notion of an unleashing experience, and the, one of yeah. the focal points of uh, a whole new engineer is this idea that somewhere uh, for for people who have the courage to do things that are go against the grain, which uh, in large part your um, your book Serial Innovators is is all about, that something something or someone somewhere um, um, helped the person have an experience where they overcame fear to do something that was uncertain and so that the person then has the courage to do that and, and then does does something, it doesn't have to be a huge thing, but does something that um, unleashes them in a sense that they can then sort of be lifelong learners and lifelong explorers um, throughout their life. Is, it, is, is there something like that in your, in your past that you'd like to talk well, about? You know, I, um, I I thought back a bit about this, and, and I'll, I'll tell you actually two different stories that almost kind of bookend my my life. One from a very early stage, and it probably doesn't fit exactly with the unleashing experience as you've described okay. it, but I'd say it's very close. Sure. Um, you know, and I can't I can't remember what age it was. It was it was pretty young. It was maybe kindergarten or first grade, but um, I distinctly recall the first word that I learned, the spelling of the first word. It was your, Y-O-U-R. And I just remember, uh, you know, kind of the, the rush, the experiential, experiential rush of that. And, uh, you know, kind of a hunger began really to, to, to learn things after that. It was hmm. pretty much from that point on. Now, I will say that in terms of courage, though, um, you know, and, and these things can kind of ebb and flow depending on the environment you're in. But, uh, in my adult life, and I'd say it might have been about a decade or so ago now, and, and uh, um, I was in a, a, an organization outside of the university, um, and uh, this group of people was moving very much in a postmodern view of, of how to understand the world. And it was uh, very disconcerting, didn't have a lot of insight into it, uh, was able to really learn and dig into it and, you know, challenge it in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And, hmm. you know, again, what I find fascinating in that is that experience actually helped inform the research that I do. So it allowed me to move forward in, in multiple ways. So I, I guess I'm intrigued by how those things can kind of come together sometimes. Nice. And and I guess I, I was just thinking about that. I went, was reading, reminding myself of your background, and, and you had the um, fortune uh, of um, being advised in your PhD by one of the 20th century, 21st century's yeah. arguably greatest inventors, Nick Kalaniak Jr. So, what, 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 uh, what uh, legacy did has has he given you, or what did you learn from him that you carry with you? 
Uh, you know, Nick, Nick, uh, you know, is and was a wonderful, uh, guy. I, uh, can't thank him enough. I mean, he really did put me on this trajectory that I'm on now. Uh, Nick worked side by side with the students, something that you don't find in, in many advisors. And so, uh, he had a small group and, uh, it was very much a, a tacit transmission of how to operate within, um, a research lab and how to discover. Uh, he literally would work on parts of experiments and, uh, uh, didn't micromanage, but you know he was in there with his sleeves rolled up with us, and I just found that fascinating. As especially as I've gotten to the point I'm at now, looking at people who were breakthrough innovators, and seeing that tacit dimension of transmission of 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 knowledge, if you will, and seeing how he did it is just to me fascinating to reflect on it. Yeah, nice. Uh, thanks for thanks for sharing that. So, and one of the reasons that we want. To- there are many reasons to get you on the show, but one of the main reasons is the very, uh, for me, personally influential book that you and uh, Abby Griffin and Ray Price uh, co-authored back in 2012, the book called Serial Innovators, How Individuals Create and Deliver Breakthrough Innovations in Mature firm, uh, Firms. And, and I'm, I guess I'm curious, before we dig into what the book talks about, what, what's the backstory? What, what, in, what inspired... What made it necessary for you guys to get together and write that book? Well, you know, it's a, it's a, one of my favorite stories, really, is because what happened was very early on in my time at Illinois, I was beginning to to just reflect on what would be a good area to work on in terms of research. And you know, you recall Harry Cook, who had been department sure. head at the time, and I had talked to Harry, and Harry said, you know, just just pick a topic that you're familiar with. And I thought, okay, you know, and I'd always been intrigued by the people who seemed to know what to do today that was going to move the organization forward. You know, and I, at the time was thinking of them as technical visionaries. I'd say I was kind of, uh, I don't want to say myopic in that respect, but focused. And uh, you know, I was beginning to gather some data on it. And Ray Price had been on campus for maybe all of a year before me. And I ran into a parking lot one day and uh, he and I were talking and he goes, yeah, you know, I, I recognize that. I've done work in that area. And fast forward another year or so and, uh, Ray uh, went to talk to some people at NSF about our work, and they said, well, you know, do you know Abby Griffin? And, you know, she's about a mile away from you on campus, and she's working on a very similar, you know, topic. And so, you know, totally without planning, um, we kind of just gradually, you know, uh, merged together into this little activity. And what's fascinating is we didn't start out to say we're going to take a different approach to understanding how innovation occurs. We started out by just trying to understand and what emerged over time was this insight that, oh my gosh, we're, we really are looking at people. And, and this people perspective is a very powerful counter view to the very process perspective, or for that matter, random perspective that a lot of others have. And so that's kind of the, the thread, if you will, that got us to that point. It was almost in hindsight that we began to realize after maybe eight of the 10 or a dozen years what we really had in hand as this, uh, the insight gelled and emerged. Well, and I, of course, as you know, and I'm not sure the our listeners know, my, my I had an office down the hall from yep. Ray, and so I would, I, I I had the benefit of listening to this book being yep. researched and and worked on, and so Ray would share snippets of it, and I would say, oh gosh, that's really interesting. I, I can use that here, and would go apply it in iFoundry and yep. other things that I was trying to do at Illinois. So it had, as I said, it had personal influence. It. Um, was amazingly influential, and I want to talk about some of the things that struck me as as um, most important. But I guess um, 
you know, one of the things uh, I, I love the opening of the book with um, um, the story about uh, Procter and Gamble innovator Tom Osborne. Uh, Ray suggested that I bring Tom to class. Um, I was teaching a class again, inspired by the book and and the work that was going on called Modeling for Tech Visionaries, and I invited. I invited Tom to come to class, and he told these just marvelous stories about the, the feminine hygiene products that you, yeah. the, the stories that you tell in, tell in the book. But I'm um, in thinking about that. Why, what was it about Tom's story that was important to tell there at the very outset of the book? Yeah, Tom was really the exemplar among ex- exemplars, if you will. Even when we were doing the research and only looking at quotes. We could almost tell uh, intuitively after a while which were Tom's quotes because he he seemed to be able to have not only the insight, which all of them did, uh, but really the ability to articulate it in a way that really, really gelled things. Tom's just an outstanding person, the kind of guy you'd want as a next-door neighbor uh, or a brother-in-law, you know, you name it. I mean, the kind of person you really want to relate to. But, but what Tom did um, that was just so intriguing, and, and again, to give the your listeners a little bit of background. He's responsible for, for what had become uh, the Always Ultra product, which is a billion-dollar brand for P&G. And whereas most people think that innovation, or, or often think that innovation is, let's design a better product, uh, Tom's story illustrates that it wasn't necessarily the design of a better product, although it was in, in the end, but it was what he brought to the table was a, a, a questioning and a reframing of the question that was being addressed, the problem. Uh, before Tom, uh, feminine hygiene products were, were viewed uh, with a paradigm as being like a, uh, a diaper. It was there to catch fluid, uh, to catch urine. And so you know, for the diaper case and blood in the case of a feminine hygiene product, Tom looked at it and just kind of he began to realize, hey, there's probably something more here. And, and as he dug into it, he realized, no, it shouldn't be this diaper paradigm. It should be a garment paradigm. And it was only then that these technologies could be brought to bear against the problem. So his innovation first was the, the insight that, um, that they were working on the wrong paradigm. They were really, in a way, almost asking the wrong question. And, uh, uh, again, it, it weaves in things that uh, we've already begun to talk about, the courage, the ability to navigate the organization as well. It's not just somebody who has great insight but gets frustrated. It's someone who's able and willing to assume that responsibility, it's their lot in light, if you will, to move forward. So uh, just a wonderful exemplar, just a great guy. Yeah, and and uh, probably be good to illustrate some of the the, uh, the principles and things that you pulled out with, with his stories and other stories as we go forward. But before mm-hmm. we do that, I guess I'm curious, you know, so you, you – interviewed uh you and your co-authors interviewed you know hundreds of innovators and mm-hmm. there was a fair amount of filtering you interviewed people who were not actually considered uh, serial innovators yeah. who had some of the characteristics but not all the ones that you ended up looking at but I- i'm just curious and and there is some of this in there is some of this in the book but I- i'm actually more interested in a gut reaction now looking back as you look back on those interviews what what sort of sticks with you about the the personality, the kind of person that does this sort of thing? Who who are these people um, emotionally and and uh, and intellectually? Who are they? Yeah, you know, you know, I, I and I'm forgetting who this quote would be attributed to, but there are countless ways to get breakthrough innovation wrong, and there's pretty much one way that it just seems to work on a regular basis. So asking about common threads, I think, is is critical. Um, 
These are people who are uh, systems thinkers. They're able to see uh, to think holistically. Um, they're the kind of people that think, if you will, nonlinearly. Um, uh, they're people that are very immersive in how they approach problems. They 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 put themselves into the problem as opposed to standing at a distance. Uh, they're persistent and persevere, but not blindly. I mean, if it's a if it's a dumb thing to pursue, they know to stop. Um, they they have you know incredible emotional intelligence. They know when to push, when not to, uh, and you know, and they're servants. I mean, a lot of times people will talk not too much about servant leadership, but they'll they'll talk about it in the sense that it might even devalue it. But these people are truly servant leaders because they're not only serving. Um, uh, the company and the shareholders, but they're serving customers, they're serving their colleagues and management, because in the end, uh, the company survives and thrives to continue to compete. Uh, and with their breakthroughs, it competes over a much longer term than just might be an incremental innovation. So uh, those are a few common threads, but uh, uh, it's kind of the way I look at them, just uh, uh, remarkable people, good role models for everybody. Yeah, and... and um... In terms of, uh, in, you know, so the in the interviews you took, you, you were you were trying to create new, and you did create new models and 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 science. And in the interviews, was there was there a story that you were told that was particular, personally inspirational, or something that sort of uh, changed your life? And listen, just listening to um, one or more of these stories. Well, you know, there, there's once. Part of Tom's story, and then actually someone else's that wasn't really even, for that matter, part of the interviews, but I spoke with later. Tom was on the bubble twice, if you will, when he was at P&G. I mean, he was really at risk. And, we, you know, we tell the story openly yeah. in the book and have, you know, his permission, P&G's permission to discuss this. But, but you know, he was really in a, uh, you know, a position where he could have lost his, his job in two separate occasions. And one case, he had uh, his colleagues step forward and advocate in his behalf. Another time... It was a, an executive-level person who understood the value. But it goes back to that idea of courage that he had, and appropriate yeah. courage, not uh, uh, blind courage, but appropriate courage based on him having seen this. The other story that I found fascinating, because it kind of opened up a, uh, a, another way of looking at things for me, and that's the story of, of Martin Fisher. Now, uh, Martin, someone that um, that we didn't profile in the book, and I have just a uh, maybe a paragraph or so written about him um, uh, in a book chapter that I just uh, wrote that will be coming out soon. And he's uh, the CEO of a, of a group called Kickstart, and they make uh, water pumps for Africa. And and um, you know, so here's an area that that you wouldn't normally, I wouldn't normally think of in terms of breakthrough innovation. Uh, you know, the water pumps are pretty simple, and he spent you know a great number of years in Africa trying to. You know, uh, help poor people. So it was a, a noble, passionate approach uh, to helping other people. I mean, just a beautiful story. But he found after, you know, I don't know if it was 10 or 15 years, he realized, you know, this just isn't working. And uh, it was kind of this epiphany that he had that, that it wasn't the product design, it was actually the business process that he had mm. in place. And he uh, told me, you know, after I was uh, the MIC. MIT Lemelson Award, uh, he was one of the winners of that a few years back, and spoke to him after that, and he said, you know, I went from being a socialist to a capitalist with a small c. And, you know, I love the way he summed that up, but it just showed me that there, nice. that this idea of, of reframing the problem uh, is just so powerful. So to me, that really 
uh, opened doors to saying this can happen in a lot of other ways. Not that I didn't see it before, but I didn't see it so powerfully. So as nice. I'm sure we'll get to by the end of this, higher ed can be impacted by these things. Nice. Great. And Bruce, I, let's let's take a little bit of a break, but Please. I, I want to, after the break, I'd like to come back and, and dig into some of the core concepts and the, especially the things that were there's a fair amount out, uh, out there about innovation and, and there are ways in which your book goes against the grain in a number of really interesting ways. I want to come back and do that with you, if you will. Good. All right. So this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Bruce Vojak. Uh, stay with us. And in the next segment, we're going to dig into the book, Serial Innovators. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with Dave Goldberg and our special guest, Bruce Vojak. This second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your school or, or organization at 3joy.com. And before the break, we were visiting with Bruce Vojak, and, uh, author of the book, Serial Innovators, How Individuals Create and Deliver Breakthrough Innovations in Mature Firms. And, and Bruce, in the book, you and your co-authors distinguish between incremental innovation and breakthrough in innovation, and what's the difference, and why is that difference important to organizations today? Sure. Uh, let me put it in the context of, of a business, although, as I just said before, it could be in a lot of other contexts as well. Yep. Um, in a business, when a product or the company hits maturity, um, uh, revenues tend to you know, pretty much uh, become flat at, at best, um, and uh, margins begin to erode, and so companies have to do things to either extend that maturity or find a way to redefine the company. And, uh, you know, kind of one way to look at these two, incremental and breakthrough, is that incremental tends to extend maturity. Uh, it works on the products and the, the product paradigm that already exists and find ways to optimize it. So 
when I spoke earlier about P&G and Tom Osborne and feminine hygiene products, that would be uh, the, the, the group that would be, you know, very diligently working on trying to optimize the, the paradigm of the feminine hygiene product as a, as a diaper, if you will. Uh, breakthrough Innovation, though, asks those deep questions and it moves it forward. And, and the benefit of Breakthrough is that financially it, it extends the life of the activity much longer. You get a, a much richer patent protection and really a much more aggressive competitive position in the marketplace. And uh, a huge difference. It's the difference between peeling carrots with a knife and buying a bag of peeled carrots. I mean, just think about those two as two ends of the innovation spectrum. Sure. Nice um Nice metaphor, and and so um, you know, and when I was um, I was when I was talking to Ray in the hallways at Illinois, we were trying to think about well, how do we actually get a a tried and true business, quote unquote, like the University of Illinois, to do things differently and in a certain way extend its margins, and and um, it's hard. <laughs> it's it's it hard. It's, it's it, hard. It's it hard is. work to get organizations to change in in major ways, as folks yeah. like Clay Christensen and others point out. Yeah, it is. Why is it so? Yeah. Why is it so? Why why is it so hard? Do you well? Do you, think? you know, um, it it's the organization itself, and and the way um, that I've looked at it, uh, and and you know, Ray and I had had extended discussions about this. Is that that there there are two things that are going on in a company simultaneously, even if it's done well. And there's this optimization activity that I alluded to earlier with the incremental innovation. And then yep. there's this, um, this innovation activity. And, and what I want to be really clear about is the optimization is good. A lot of people uh, will tend to be dismissive about the optimization. And I want to be right up front that uh, you know, if you go back to Adam Smith and you ask why do companies, you know, grow to the size they are, and, and it's to get economies of scale and scope. And why do people specialize? Again, economies of scale and scope. And so um, I'm, I'm troubled almost when people are dismissive about the optimization and incremental innovation because it's a critical part of, of the role of the company. Uh, it's difficult to do breakthrough, though, in, because, you know, you've got this machine that's moving forward, and um, and it just doesn't know how to accept something on a regular basis that's different. And so, uh, you know, kind of like a, a virus uh, invading the body, the, the the optimization culture will tend to try to push the the innovation uh, activity out. And so, what you need to do is at least manage that tension. And yeah. managing the tension is tough. Well, and we've you know we've had guys like uh, Ed Shine and. John Cotter yep. on the show, and and uh, yep. of course Ed talks all about culture and and um, yep. how resistant it is to change. And folks like John Cotter said, that if you want to make change these days, you need to have a dual operating system. Essentially, create a culture that supports this other kind of activity that's so different than what is normally what is accepted in the norms of the existing culture. But the kind of thing that you're talking about with the breakthrough innovation, sometimes in the existing literature um, prior to your work, uh, and still now, is called sometimes called the fuzzy front end of innovation. So there's this the incremental part, they're nice you can put nice stage gates on it and and manage yep. the incremental part in kind of a systematic step by step manner. And um, but the fuzzy front end is something different, and and the even that language uh, suggests that in the past we haven't really understood too well what 
um, what what's 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 going on. So, you know, prior to your research, there, there what was the conventional view of the fuzzy front end and com- companies? What how did people take how did people view things um, um, before you identified these uh, individualistic serial innovators with special characteristics? Yeah, I'd say that there are two two ways that people looked at it, and and you know, I even hear this kind of in in the uh, in comments that people make in questions that they ask, even still, you know, very often today. And one view of the world is that um, that fuzzy front end, if you will, can be uh, uh, converted into a process that we can make it into almost like a recipe, and that process or recipe will then uh, lead us to having. Uh, you know, breakthrough innovations. Um, the other way to look at it is that it's it's very random. It's close your eyes, grit your teeth, roll the dice, and you know, hope that uh, you know something works. And and I'd say that uh, it's clearly what well, we found is clearly neither recipe nor random, and it's really a third way that um, is not at all between the two or a combination of the two. It's a third way entirely, and it's this. Idea that it's uh, it's this beautiful act of discovery, of human discovery, and uh, learning, if you will, and um, you know it's it's just so different, and, and to us it was why it was so powerful. Yeah, and and um, and that, you know, and it's also this perspective. I think the idea that somehow um, uh, in your book you talked about uh, that there are these different roles of. of of people and there are these inventors and champions and implementers yep. and that this is often the it, part of the stage gate yep. that there's this kind of handoff but the what you found yep. in your book it seems to me is a more individualistic kind of thing where there there were these super innovators who kind of yep. um, they got that they transcended they got the technology they got the business they got the politics and and somehow against really against all odds and against a culture that really didn't want them to do what they were doing were able to do this as you know what yep. um you, and you've got a model that oh. identifies different things, but what is it? You know, what is it um, in your in your findings that uh, sort of goes against the the traditional views? Well, and, and thank you. This is what you're suggesting is yet another way that it, it, if you will, kind of works counter. Not to belabor Adam Smith, but back to Adam Smith and and uh, the Love of Nations. He talks literally about the manufacturer of pins and how. Um, uh, yes. By breaking up various steps in the process, uh, you'll actually have a more efficient and a higher quality production of these pins. And and uh, what he's saying is is that uh, it's specialization that occurs. They've so got somebody who works on one aspect, another on, a, on another aspect. And so the way people had modeled innovation with uh, the inventor handling just the technical part, the champion handling more the the market transition, the implementer you know, if you will, running the gauntlet of the state is really um, a form of that uh, specialization that Adam Smith talks about. And and it puzzled me when I went back and read Smith's work because, um, you know, I kept thinking, gee, you know, these are good ideas. I like what he said, but what I realized, Adam Smith's discussion is really, you know, it's unarticulated, but it's really an optimization discussion. And so um, it almost begs the question of if that's optimization and you get these economies of scale and scope by doing these things, you know, might there be another way? Might there be a way where, uh, you know, you're down too granularly to really get a breakthrough? 
And that's really what we're arguing. We don't usually go into the details of, you know, the first principles, if you will. But I think it's a powerful way to go back and say, why is what on the surface appears to be a good approach, why is that approach failing us? And I'd say that's the reason. Okay, so, um, yeah, Bruce, and I think we, we need to, we're going to take a little bit of a, a break here. We're having some technical difficulty, but let's uh, let's take a little bit of a break. And after the break, okay. let's uh, pick up with this discussion of of the Adam Smith, the pins and the optimization versus what else is going on. Uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Bruce Vojak. We'll be back after a short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon and Big Beacon Radio. Advertise on this show and reach some of the most committed reformers and transformers in education today. Write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to reach that audience today. And so in the last segment, uh, uh, we were with uh, Bruce Vojak, author of Serial Innovators, and we were talking about some of the findings of of, – of that book, and and Bruce, you were talking about uh, the um, famous uh, an analogy in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations about uh, um, pins and the and division of labor. And the way I I heard that I heard actually I was hearing that in an interesting way. I was hearing that as so essentially when you have a a, a set of steps that is known for a problem that we know that we need to solve, then optimi- optimization makes a lot of sense. Yep. But if we're if we don't actually even 
really know the problem that we're solving or the steps to solve it, then kind of handing that off to different people might not be the might not be the way to go. Is that fair? That's a very nice summary of it, Dave. Yes. Yeah, and and so and actually thinking about that, I, I think one of the things that sticks with me uh, um, in in talking to to you and and Ray about this work is the sense in which these serial innovators are just awesome problem finders. We talk about problem yep. solving in engineering all the time, but these folks. In fact, I remember Tom Osborne coming to class, and he said, "Look." Um, if you're gonna if you're gonna go spend time on a problem, it may as well be a billion dollar problem that um, is really going to pay off. Don't you know? You can spend the same amount of time, and you'll find a, a ten million dollar problem. But why not spend time on a problem that really needs to be solved? That will really um, will really help people in some way. Uh, how? In absolutely, what ways are these people absolutely. problem awesome finders? Uh, problem finders. What does that mean? Well, you know, there's a, a great deal of talk today about empathy and understanding customers, and I'd say that uh, they exhibit just amazing empathy in that respect. They uh, they get into the customers' minds in ways that others don't, and uh, in doing so, they're really able to see often problems that the even the customers don't understand or see. And so, again, I'd say that these are people who uh, uh, care deeply about the customers and take the time to to gain that insight and have the ability to. Yeah, and so and and so I get it. So so what is it that you know? So and you've, you've got so many great stories in the book, and um, um, you know, people who kind of went their own way in finding these problems that other people didn't see. But what are some of the techniques they used to say find problems? What is you know, so the empathy is part of it, but what is are there things that they do that other people don't do? What is it that? in a process sense that they can't, that they do do or can do that helps them be such great problem finders. Sure. Sure. You know, I'd say that, uh, and, and while we have kind of, a, let's say a longer list, the ones that always stood out to me are the ones that, uh, for example, they, they see what they want, uh, as an endpoint. Um, there's a great story that we were able to get from, uh, uh, a Caterpillar engineer about, uh, uh, he wanted or had this vision, if you will, of being able to drop equipment, you know, parachute equipment in uh, to a very remote area, have that equipment remotely operate, and build an airstrip that you could then allow uh, airplanes to land in. And so working backwards from that vision, uh, he was able to, uh, uh, to find a way to, to begin to, to break down that problem into the pieces. And so... Uh, you know, that's an example. Uh, often these people think very strategically. Uh, they do look holistically. They, they look at the problem in a much broader context. Earlier I had just briefly talked about uh, buying a bag of carrots. Think about it. I mean, every approach before that was optimizing a knife, even a safety blade or an ergonomic handled uh, uh, carrot peeler. But, you know, think of what it took to look so holistically that you began to consider the the distribution aspects as well as just peeling the carrot is the problem. Yeah, you call out in the book you call out this the you know, from a personality perspective that they're oftentimes holistic and systems thinkers yep. in in a way and but it's also in 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 many of these cases there's a technical solution. They're technically deep and sometimes we talk yes. about the I, I don't actually like the formulation of the T shaped engineer, but the there's a sense in which um, that um, actually, I, I I think I coined a term. I don't think it's from the book, but I I, I call them active um, 
uh, tees that so they have the ability they're deep in their own area but then there's lots of times they come up with things that they need to know about so this curiosity yep. drives them to find yep. out enough so they're dangerous so they can hire the right people and and then manage working in these areas that they don't know much about so they're sort of dynamic tees where they dive down into areas that they need to dive down into to actually solve this problem that they found well, you know, and one way is to look at them as that, and, and I like that. Another way is to look at them as pie-shaped or M-shaped people, that they're multiply deep. Mm. And, um, and you could even use that if you, if you convolve that spectrum with itself, uh, which to me is the nonlinear uh, aspect of innovation. You'll yes. get countless more, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, spectrum uh, peaks or dips, if you will, that is, again, suggestive of learning even more and more once you add that just little grain of extra insight that you're talking about. So yes, it's uh, it's powerful how a small additional amount of insight that they know where to look for will have a huge difference in their uh, innovation. And and I'm and actually I'm sort of relying less on my notes and more on my hallway conversations with Ray. Go I remember it. Ray walking down the hall and saying, "Dave, we need a course on modeling because these guys are great modelers. Uh, they under they understand stuff and they use kind of appropriate models for the what they need to to do to solve the problem. How how does their you know so and you know so you, an engineering education teaches you a lot about modeling, oftentimes in a particular discipline. But in what ways are they different kinds of modelers or system understanders than others? Well. You know, and, and this is just one way, but very often engineers um, are trained to model within their own discipline. And yep. uh, I'd say that the, what I've always been impressed by are the people who can model uh, cross-discipline. Um, uh, one case that comes to, to mind is the case of, uh, of uh, Ray's close friend, uh, and I apologize, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, he co-authored the book on HP with him. Um, uh, I'll, I'll remember it in a moment, but sure. he actually was able to, um, Chuck house, into Chuck house. Thank you. He was able to look into data that was available for, I think it was emphysema in the state of Wyoming. And he was able to understand and model it, if you will, uh, uh, to understand what was really going on and what was the problem. And so here's a guy who had, you know, no, background in uh, epidemiology or, or, you know, health problems, but yet uh, he understood the physical reality sufficiently to gain that insight. And that, to me, is just powerful. Yeah, and it seems to me that it's a kind of uh, um, part, part of that modeling and, and is... Um I call it the Will a Will Rogers theory of models. There's so there's so many different ways to model. You can model things qualitatively and yep. in, in making distinctions yep. that are sort of philosophical. And I know you and I share a taste mm -hmm. for philosophical reasoning and and the use of language yep. as a way in and as a way to understand. And then of course you can go to full blown equations of motion and Markov chains and crazy stuff that that can be very accurate if the models are can be calibrated and are sufficiently um, uh, close to the, the the system that you're trying to model. So you've got the you've got these you've got really it's a multi-dimensional spectrum of models, and it seems to me in talking to guys like Tom and reading the stories in your book that there's this there's a kind of breadth of snatching the right kind yep. of model and the right depth of modeling for different facets of the problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly the case. I mean they. 
they have this sense, they see things when it comes to modeling, when it comes to identifying problems that others don't often see. In fact, as a very short uh, anecdote, I was having lunch with uh, uh, Nancy Dawes from P&G when she was on campus a few years back. She's uh, okay. yeah. uh, responsible for um, uh, the Olay uh, uh, breakthrough innovation, the really rethinking of it. And in the middle of lunch, she said, you know, I see dead people. And I kind of was startled. I had not seen the movie The Sixth Sense. But basically, they see things that others don't see, or they see them before others do. And and modeling is part of that. They see how to model things appropriately in ways that others don't see. And that's it. I remember her coming to camp. I remember her giving a talk, yep. a very interesting talk on, on that subject. And I was um, yep. moved. Yeah, so th- there's a specialness about these people. Now, I think you know one of the ways in which um, certainly the personally most moving piece of your models that that changed my life, um, essentially, so Ray was in the hall one day and he said, Dave, these these people, they all have this experience. Um, we call it crossing the bridge before the experience. They are um, they think, oh, if I if only my company appreciated me, I'd be a technical genius and and receive awards. After the experience, they realize that influencing others and convincing people politically is just another problem to solve creatively like a technical problem. And that understanding changes their life. What is it? It does. Yes. Yeah. How does so? So, are there some stories that you can relay, or how is how does it that people come come to that? Where how do they figure that out? What what uh, well, what gets them there? There's kind of a fork in the road for these people. Uh, very often, where they they may have just an outstanding insight. They may really see what should be done, and and they get to a point where they, in a way, almost choose that they either sit back and become cynical and bitter about it. Uh, or they say, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, nobody's going to do this but me. I have the passion for this. I have the insight for it. Uh, it may not be my personality to do this today, but I, I may be my lot in life to, to move this forward. And, and I hate to say it's resignation. It's a different kind of joy. It's a joy of, of, uh, of the hard work it takes for them to move it forward. And they do develop in this uh, area. Uh, they often get mentoring. They often have uh, role models to look at. Uh, but it just it's a it's a difficult challenge. But the ones who accept that challenge, uh, you know, very often are the ones that are going to be the ones who uh, who succeed in all this, and it's powerful. And I'd say in a large company, that's as big a problem um, as the uh, the technical inside. Almost, it's that. Uh, accepting responsibility. Tom Osborne, for example, not to belabor his story, he sure. could have had this insight and just complained, but it, he didn't. He took responsibility to to move it forward as best he could. Well, and I, I as I think back to um, the iFoundry moment and and mm-hmm. um, Andreas Cangalaris and I getting together and working on the formation of this not this anti committee. And yeah. um, and I remember and I remember Ray's words along those lines. I said, and it was like a head slapping moment for me. It was like, oh my yep. God, that that's right. And it was so. It was a realization of the power, and, and, and it was sudden. It wasn't. It wasn't like yep. it took weeks or, to integrate it. Once I saw it and understood what that meant, it was like, oh, I need. I need to do some different things that I'm doing, and yeah. and and then it was it wasn't obvious or easy, but it was clear that's right. that that other That's stuff right. had to be done. It, it 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 was okay. It was hard work, and 
um, and thinking about some of the things that I did in the book, you talk about different kinds of ways that people cross the bridge and some of the things they do you talk, but the the main thing they're doing is they're taking responsibility for influence. And you talk about hard versus soft kinds of tactics and and other things. What, so how, how do you distinguish among the array of things that people do when they cross the bridge and they realize that the politics is something that they have to deal with uh, proactively? Well, you know, and you mentioned the hard and soft tactics, so let's focus on them. And let's also focus on the fact that uh, this will uh, essentially always be context-dependent. Because sure. it will depend on, on the organization and the organization's culture. Uh, what does the organization value? And so uh, hard and soft, um, and I'll quickly add, this is not the same hard and soft as uh, used, for example, in getting the yes in terms of the negotiation tactics. Hard uh, is uh, uh, implies, uh, I'd say, more of a quantitative, more of a uh, uh, measurable, if you will, uh, means of influencing. Uh, a little more direct at times, yes, but again, more quantitative. Soft is more nudging people and finding uh, ways to more, perhaps even indirectly, influence. And so, the idea is for these people to develop discernment to know. Uh, when and where to use these approaches. So, for example, um, uh, one person actually reached out to a potential customer uh, who then in turn called this individual's boss and said, when can I get product? You know, they found a way to develop a pull for their product amongst their customer base. Uh, uh, there was a great story that we picked up actually after the book was over about uh, uh, an engineer who set up um, uh, of a demonstration in the room next door to where a senior board was meeting. And as the board meeting broke up, he quickly uh, grabbed a few of the board members, brought them into the room next door, and showed uh, uh, the demonstration. I'd say that would be clearly more of a hard tactic, uh, especially, in fact, that occurred in Japan, which, again, culturally would be pretty unusual. But yet, uh, these people have the sense of knowing what to do and when to do it. And, and I'm not just saying that they're always born with this. They develop it. And, and as you very appropriately said, it's, a, it's another problem to solve for them. Yeah, and, and it seems so. And, this, yeah, you, and you called out the example in Japan, and, and the book has been uh, translated into Japanese yeah. and has been fairly influential there. Um, other other t- stories of the book's influence around the, w- the world, I know it's actually received a pretty warm welcome in, in Japan. Well, you know, and, and Dave, uh, we were very fortunate, and I'm going to say thanks to you publicly here, because, uh, Dave, you had introduced us to uh, Hiroshi Tamura and Fumiko Ichikawa uh, at Republic in Tokyo, um, and uh, they were taken by the concepts in the book. It is kind of, as the, as the book is subtitled in the Japanese version, kind of a, a non-Silicon Valley approach, if you will, to uh, innovation. And and not only did they uh, uh, work and successfully work to get the book translated, they've actually run uh, a, a few uh, uh, working groups of companies and company representatives to help them explore the concept of breakthrough innovation within their culture. And what Ray and I were out there about a year and a half ago now and, and uh, in Japan uh, uh, visiting with them, and we were fascinated by uh, the success stories that they were able to capture and tell. Uh, it wasn't clear to us either way before we met with them that this would have uh, culturally as broad of a of a 
of a fit, and it really did. And so, uh, you know, again, oh, thanks to you, and thanks for that. Well, and and I appreciate the acknowledgement. But I'm actually more I'm fascinated by what you just said because you know. So yeah. I've I've had um, well, I've spent a fair amount of time in Japan, but more time recently yep. in Singapore. And so you have mm-hmm. um, many of these cultures that have uh, you know that that have t- throwbacks to sort of Confucian values of of um, the, you know the smartest guy in the room is uh, um, uh, is it, or the oldest guy in the room is the smartest guy in the room. Um, you have to have difficulty with innovation, and as, for example, in Singapore, it shows up in uh, in posters that the planning councils put up around about. Well, let's be innovative, and it's like it's almost command and control innovation and yep. creativity. So I'm curious, what, how did how did the book land, and um, what in what ways was it sort of modified or adapted to uh, the differences in Japanese culture? Well, you know, it was it was translated as is. Um, there now again, obviously, translations um, sure uh, are, are never literal, but but it was translated as is. It was presented as a as a glimpse or snapshot uh, into what has been successful in the U.S. Um, and uh, again, the stories that we've heard from uh, uh, Hiroshi and Fumiko have been. Yeah. Uh, have been powerful. I just didn't expect it. In fact, I'll use another uh, uh, phrase I've heard is that in Japan, very often the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. And if you think of it, uh, yeah. these, these serial innovators are very often the nails that stick up. But, but they've seemed to, there seem to be people at, uh, again, just like in the U.S., a very small frequency, but are able to pull this off and have an impact. And it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful to see. Nice and and so um, and let's take a and we've got a, a just a couple of minutes. Um, so, yep. what does this book mean for um, higher ed? What uh, you know? What what lessons are there in this book for for you know? We're this show is interested in transforming higher ed, engineering ed in particular, and more education, uh, higher ed generally uh, um, uh, is of interest to the show. What what are some of the key lessons? We've got about a minute left. Ah, uh, okay. Well. I'm going to focus on what you can do for students then, and I'm going to be quick to add that I think it's very difficult, uh, even in a graduate program, to get students multiply deep and broad by the time they graduate. But there are things they can do, and one is that while in engineering in particular, we, we tend to teach a, uh, a, reduc- a reductionist, detached, and linear view of the world and problem solving, I think we can begin to help them understand that there's also this holistic, intimate, holistic, and nonlinear yeah. side. And, and that, I think, is just hugely important. Help them to see that there's a, another way to think in addition to that. Yeah, and um, that, that seems like an important piece of it. And, and uh, many of the things that we've talked about are, I think, in many ways, uh, a whole new engineer and the Big Beacon Manifesto were influenced by your work. And, and uh, so many of the things that we talk about on the show are consonant with the principles of, uh, yeah. of serial innovation, both in... Large companies, as well as um, as well as startups, many of the same principles apply. So, as our listeners uh, want to find out more about your your work and the things that you're doing now, your book and your uh, speaking and your consulting firm, how do they go about contacting you? Sure, they could check my website. Uh, it's probably the easiest way for them to find me, and that's just Breakthrough Innovation Advisors, and that's with an O, advisors.com. Um, it can be either hyphenated or not. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, my phone number is uh, 217-714-4574. Uh, and my email is just B as in boy, B as in Victor, O-J-A-K, at BreakthroughInnovationAdvisors.com. So any of those ways to, to reach out would be uh, very welcome. be happy to talk to anybody about any of their interest in this. Well, best of luck to you, Bruce, and thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Dave, thanks to you. I uh, always enjoy talking to you, and this was a, a special time. Thanks. You're welcome. So you've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our, our guest, Bruce Bojack, author of, co-author of Serial Innovators. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.